more verse to go. We all make mistakes. And even in our you know, scripture passage that we just read, you know, Mary gets commended for uh, being at the feet of Jesus. But both Mary and Martha are both making mistakes. Martha's not. And they're both trying to do the right thing. Martha's taking care of her guest, Jesus. That's a good thing to do. And she's making a mistake. She's not listening to Jesus. And Mary's making a mistake. She's listening to Jesus. That's a good thing to do. But she's not helping. We all make mistakes. Now, if we sin, if we do evil, if we make a misdeed, that needs forgiveness. Mistakes just need to be corrected. Misdeeds are intentional. But a mistake is not intentional hurt or rebellion. Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But that doesn't mean Jesus can't save us. We also all make mistakes. But mistakes don't prevent God from using me or using you to accomplish great things. You know, I would prefer that whenever... I talk to somebody about Jesus, about how, how he can save us and give us new life. I wish that every time I did that, everything just went was perfect. The person was ready to hear, and I had all the right words to say, and, and, and it all just worked out, and at the end they'd say, yes, I believe. But, and I especially don't want to make a mistake that would turn them off to hearing about Jesus. I remember uh, when I was, I was probably in junior high, and I was at a Bible study, and there happened to be a guest at this Bible study. This was an adult Bible study, and I was sitting in. And um, this one woman, she started sharing Jesus with this guy, and he got to a point where he, he said, I've heard enough, I don't want to hear anymore. And she kept just driving, driving at him, and, he, and I'm sitting there going, he said he doesn't want to listen anymore. And she was turning him off. It's like, I never want to be that person. I don't want to make a mistake that will turn them off. But you know what? Honestly, even though I want everything to go smooth and perfect, I can't control everything. I can't control the state of mind of the person I'm talking to. I can't always, I do my best, but sometimes I slip up and say the wrong thing. And today we're going to look at a man named Ehud. He's a man who does the right thing. But he does it in a little bit the wrong way. He's an imperfect man. Like I'm an imperfect man and we're all imperfect people. Yet God still uses him to do great things. So we're going to be in Judges chapter 3. Judges 3 starting in verse 12. And it says again, The Israelites again did what was evil in the Lord's sight. He gave King Eglon of Moab power over Israel because they had done what was evil in the Lord's sight. After Eglon convinced the Ammonites and the Amalekites to join forces with him, he attacked and defeated Israel and took possession of the city of Palms. The Israelites served King Eglon of Moab 18 years. Then the Israelites cried out to the Lord, and he raised up Ehud, son of Gera, a left-handed Benjamite, as a deliverer for them. The Israelites sent him with the tribute for King Eglon of Moab. Ehud made himself a double-edged sword, 18 inches long. 
he strapped it to his right thigh under his clothes and brought the tribute to King Eglon of Moab, who was an extremely fat man. First thing we see, Ehud is a man with singular proficiency. Singular proficiency. Now, let's start actually with the nation of Israel. They, like us, are an imperfect people. It starts by just saying, they again did evil in the Lord's sight. And we're going to hear that over and over again. They get redeemed and have years of peace, and then they again do evil in the Lord's sight. And what happens this time is their enemies join forces against them. It's not just one enemy. The main one is the king of Moab, but he gets together with the Ammonites and the Amalekites, and they said, let's, let's make a coalition and fight against Israel. And because of this coalition, they're able to overwhelm them, and they're subject to the king of Moab for 18 years. And then, continuing in this idea of their imperfection, 18 years before they actually cry out to the Lord and say, deliver us. What are they doing for those other 18 years? Maybe just trying to get out on their own, not repenting of their sin. But after 18 years, they finally cry out to the Lord. And from these imperfect but repentant people, Ehud is raised up as the judge. Now, Ehud is, he's specifically said to be a left-handed Benjamite. I'm going to put on some of my gear today just for a moment so you can get a little illustration. You know, there are, uh, I looked up some scientific papers, and it's actually been geneticists have looked at the Bible over this left-handedness because, ooh, okay, we will get this straightened out. There we go. Whenever, it's not mentioned many times that somebody's left-handed in the Bible, but when it is, they're always said to be a Benjamite. I'm all twisted. Okay. We're going to get straightened out here. There we go. And so um, it's, it, it tells something to, the, uh, to our modern-day scientists, biologists and geneticists. They're saying, well, maybe being a Benjamite, it, it was genetically predisposed to be left-handed. Because in Judges chapter 20 also, they're mentioned that the Benjamites are left-handed. And also in First Chronicles 12, they're mentioned that they're left-handed or sometimes able to fight with both hands. Now that's important. Okay, so this is not a sword that an ancient Israelite would use. This is more French rapier. But now, have anybody seen the Princess Bride movie? Now, in the first sword fight between... Uh, Indigo and Wesley, they first start fighting out left-handed, and then they switch to being right-handed. Okay, not only is that, you know, extraordinary, but it's actually improbable because swords of that time are made to be either left-handed or right-handed. You can't just switch. This is a right-handed sword, which means I have to hold it on my left side so I can pull it out, and the guard protects my right hand. If I held it with my left hand, my arm is not protected. This is a right-handed sword. And so even though this isn't a sword that the Israelites would use, it kind of shows the, the evolving of swords that right hand is dominant. 
And so people would expect there to be a right-handed sword. Now, what I have in the back is uh, my paring dagger, and I can hide that and pull out with my left hand. And so I have a left-handed sword behind me that I can hide. Now, I could also put that on this side, but then I'd have to pull out like this. So left-handedness is an advantage because it's unexpected. It's also interesting that he's of the tribe of Benjamin. It's also kind of a, a play on words because Benjamin means son of my right hand. So these son of the tribe of the son of my right hand is full of people that are left-handed. It gives him a very special way to fight. He's also called by God as deliverer. So he's not just specially skilled as a fighter by being left-handed. He's specially empowered by God to do this work. And he's chosen by the people to take the tribute to the king. Now, even if you have somebody who's a skilled warrior and chosen by God, you don't send just anybody to the king. This guy also has to have skills, political skills and social skills, to be able to stand before the king and not get his head chopped off by being disrespectful. And so this man, he also has some blacksmithing skills because he makes himself a special sword. Now that sword's pretty long. He makes himself once about, what does it say, 18 inches long? Short sword, double-edged, something that he could strap to his thigh and still be able to walk. And the reason why he does that, so he, he comes in, they're going to, check him, they're going to frisk him for weapons, but they're going to check this side. Because if you're right-handed, that's where you're going to keep your weapons. He's kept it over here because he's left-handed and he can get it. Sneak it under his robe. And he also has one advantage. His opponent is nowhere near as agile as he is. Says the king is very fat. So he's got a good weapon, he's got good tactics, he can get in close, and his opponent can't keep up with him. He's got proficiency. In the movie Taken with Liam Neeson, this is in all the trailers, he's, he gets on the phone with, with this group of men that have kidnapped his daughter. And he says this, I don't know who you are. I don't know what you want. If you're looking for ransom, I can tell you I don't have money. But what I do have are a very particular set of skills, skills I have acquired over a very long career, skills that make me a nightmare for people like you. If you let my daughter go now, that'll be the end of it. I won't look for you. I will not pursue you. But if you don't, I will look for you, and I will find you, and I will kill you. The reply on the other end of the phone is, good luck. Later on, he finds him. He says, do you remember me? We spoke on the phone two days ago. I told you I'd find you. He has a particular set of skills to get his daughter back. He had had a particular set of skills to redeem Israel. Jesus had a particular set of skills to redeem us. Jesus was particularly chosen. Jesus has particular attributes. You know, God can use imperfect people 
for all kinds of things, but not one thing. God can't use imperfect people to save imperfect people. See, Jesus is perfect. Hebrews 7.26 says, It's fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. 1 John 3.5 says, You know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. 1 Peter 2.22, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. He not only didn't do anything wrong, he didn't even say anything wrong. Hebrews 4.15, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but who in every way was tempted as we are, yet without sin. So it's not like he was perfect because he had a perfect life. He was perfect because he was perfect. And because he is perfect, his sacrifice also is perfect. Again, from Hebrews, it says, The law appoints men as high priests who are weak, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints the Son, that's Jesus, who was made perfect forever. We weren't redeemed with perishable things like gold or silver, but with the precious blood of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. And here's the thing. Perfect Jesus, the perfect sacrifices, sacrifice makes us perfect before God. Second Corinthians 5.21 For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God. And Jude writes this. To him who is able to keep us from stumbling and to present us blameless before the presence of God's glory with great joy. It takes somebody with special skill to do that. There's only one person, Jesus Christ. And here's the thing. Jesus, with those special skills to redeem us, also gives each one of us particular gifts for the purpose of helping to perfect followers of Christ. Ephesians 4, 11 through 13, talks about the gifts that God gives his people. He gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature person, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Now, that's not a full list of all the gifts that God gives to the church, but here's what he's saying. He's saying the purpose of God giving singular gifts to all his people is so that the church as a whole can become complete, can become whole, can become perfect. We're not there yet, but the thing is we're supposed to be working towards it using our gifts. And so even though I can't control every situation, every conversation that I'm going to have with somebody to share them about this wonderful news about Jesus, who is perfect, I use all the gifts and abilities and preparation that I have to do the best I can. 
Because God uses imperfect people to bring perfection. Let's continue with our story with Ehud. Verse 18. When Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he dismissed the people who had carried it. At the carved images near Gilgal, he returned and said, King Eglon, I have a secret message for you. The king said, Silence. And all his attendants left him. Then Ehud approached him while he was sitting alone in his upstairs room where it was cool. Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And the king stood up from his throne. Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and plunged it into Eglon's belly. Even the handle went in after the blade, and Eglon's fat closed in over it so that Ehud did not withdraw the sword from his belly, and the waste came out. Ehud escaped by the way of the porch, closing and locking the doors of the upstairs room behind him. Ehud was gone when Eglon's servants came in. They looked and found the doors of the upstairs room locked and thought he was relieving himself in the cool room. The servants waited until they became embarrassed and saw that he had still not opened the doors of the upstairs room. So they took the key and opened the doors, and there was their Lord lying dead on the floor. There's also some shrewd planning going on here. It started in the previous verses, but we see it come to fruition here. Ehud gets the king alone. After he's dropped off the tribute, he has dismissed his own servants to, to head back. And he returns to the king alone saying, I've got a secret message for you. And the king wants this message delivered in private. And so he dis- the king also dismisses his servants and they go to the king's private chambers. And in this situation, Ehud is able to get close to the king to deliver the secret message. And it's there that he gets his concealed sword, and he stabs the king, leaving the weapon inside of him. Ehud escapes. He locks the doors behind him, so the king is locked in his room. And the king's servants, when they come, now Ehud gets away. He doesn't have a weapon on him. No one's expecting anything. The king's servants, they come and they, they, they see the doors locked. Okay, the king wants his privacy. They can also smell the odor. And so, let's just be straight here. They're, they're embarrassed to go in. The king is in his private chamber. It stinks. He's having a big poop. That's what they think is going on. Leave him alone. We don't embarrass the king. But it's taking a while, and they finally say, you know what, we need to go in and see what's going on. And when they finally go in and unlock the door, they find him dead. It's a shrewd plan. There was just one thing that I really had a problem with in Ehud's plan. And that's when he gets close to the king and says, I have a message from God for you. See, God did want to free the Israelites. That's true. God did choose Ehud. That's true with his special skills. But the message from God to anyone is never, God wants you dead. That's a lie. That's never God's message. Ezekiel 33, 11 
God says, say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his ways and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. Why then will you die? The message of God is never God wants you dead. With this one phrase, he has taken the Lord's name in vain. He has killed. He has lied. He's broken three commandments right here. Now, is he in the long run doing the thing that God wants him to do? Yes. But he's made a mistake in how he's done it. I knew a guy once, he was he was looking for a, a new job, and and um, I saw him one evening, he had this really thick uh, manual on some program, and I said, what is that? He says, I need to learn how to do this. He says, I got a job, and I said on my resume that I know how to do this. And I was like, well, what are you going to do? He says, well, here's the thing, I know I can figure it out. I know I can do it. I just don't know how to do it yet. So he lied on his resume. He got the job. He did figure it out. But was that the right way to go about it? I can't say I agree. See, the thing is, with the message from God, there yes, there is always the possibility of judgment from God. But our message is always life. Amos 5.4 The Lord God says, Seek me that you may live. Not I'm going to kill you. Acts 16.29-31 Paul and Silas are in jail. They've been chained up, and they've been singing praises to God, and there's an earthquake and all their chains fall off. They don't escape. The jailer comes in, and when he brings them out, he says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. They didn't say, There's nothing you can do. God wants to kill you. Their message was life. And so, here's the thing. I may make a mistake when I tell the story of Jesus, but I still tell the story of Jesus. Just do the best I can. And just as the message from God is always life, you know, neither is the message of God ever that God wants us to do evil. James puts it this way, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. There's never a time we can say, well, this is the only way God gave me to do this. We have to look at both how we, and as a parent, I look at my daughter's attributes, and we want those to go in the right way. You know, is Ehud being shrewd, which can be a good thing, or is he just a liar? Is my daughter determined and persistent? That's good. 
or is she stubborn? Am I content or am I just lazy? Am I confident or am I proud? I'm an imperfect person, but God uses imperfect people to bring perfection. How's our story end up? Verse 26 says, Ehud escaped while the servants waited. He passed the Jordan near the carved images and reached Sariah. After he arrived, he sounded the ram's horn throughout the hill country of Ephraim. The Israelites came down with him from the hill country, and he became their leader. He told them, follow me, because the Lord has handed over your enemies, the Moabites, to you. So they followed him, captured the fords of the Jordan leading to Moab, and did not allow anyone to cross over. At that time, they struck down about 10,000 Moabites, all stout and able-bodied men. Not one of them escaped. Moab became subject to Israel that day, and the land had peace for 80 years. Secured the peace. He secured peace. Ehud goes back the way he came. He snuck his way back all the way into Ephraim. And from there, he has the battle horn blown so that all the fighting men will rally to him. And he tells them that the Lord has, will give them the victory over the Moabites. And the people go, they fight, they win. And the turn of events, now instead of for 18 years, Moab, or Israelites being subject to Moab, now Moab is subject to the Israelites. He won the peace. It's a peace that lasted for 80 years. Now we should know Moab, because when we get to the end of this book, Moab is where Ruth comes from. So this peace leads to the coming of Jesus, the Prince of Peace. So despite Ehud's imperfection in the execution of the plan, God still used him to bring a peace, not just for 80 years, but to bring peace, the Prince of Peace. You know, sometimes... Screw-ups work. I still remember this from, I think, eighth grade or freshman year. Yeah, this was probably eighth grade. Now, it's, it's a bullying story. It's one of those things when you're in the, the time, when you're in eighth grade, sometimes you're just happy the bully's not getting you. And we were in PE class, and there was this guy, James. He was being bullied by this guy, David. And it's kind of interesting how it works. James was actually bigger than David. He probably could have taken him if he had had enough courage. But one day, James tried to do whatever he could to get David off his back. And he just put up his two fingers, the peace sign, and he yelled, Peace, 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 peace. And we didn't know where that came from. It was ludicrous. It was funny seeing him yell like that. But guess what? It worked. It was so funny, it got David to laugh, it got everybody to laugh, and it was like it was over, at least for the day. It was an imperfect plan, but it brought the peace. 
you know, when God asks us to do something, that doesn't mean every step along the way has to be perfect. Now, we should try to not have the steps be sinful, but it's okay to learn as we go sometimes. You know, in September, end of September, our church is going to be part of Family Fun Flatables uh, at Walton Park. That's one of our outreaches for, for the year. And you know what? We've gotten better at doing that every year. The first year, we did really well at running our inflatable. And I got to talk to a few people about church. But we ran our inflatable. In fact, we did so well, we even found a lost kid that was, had been wandering around. And the city liked us so much that they like, please come back next year. And so next year we, we, we still ran our inflatable and we figured out how to, how to get more people to come to our table. We ran out of what we were, you know, let's see. Well, we had can't, we are, we might be on four years on this. I'm losing track. One year we had, uh, Icy Pops. Glenda was cutting those out. And it was a hot day. Icy Pops was the thing. But we still didn't get to talk to as many people as we would have liked, even though we had a crowd. So we learned how to grab a crowd. And what we finally figured out is we need one group of people working the inflatable well, and we need another group of people with kids that talk to people in line and say, oh, yeah, that's my church over there running that one. Let me tell you what we believe. Let me tell you about Jesus. Because the time to talk to people is in line. It took us a while to figure that out. That's okay. We learn as we go. Because here's the thing. If God wanted perfect witnesses to Jesus, God would have commissioned angels to do witnessing. Not us. But God commissions me. God commissions you. Because God uses imperfect people to bring people to perfection. Now, after the sermon, we're going to sing the song Heart of Worship. Matt Redman wrote that song. He, he was still a very popular Christian worship songwriter and at a big church in California. And people were coming to the church and they were singing worship songs to God and they liked to listen to Matt Redman and he realized this is becoming all about me, Matt Redman. Now, it's not that people had bad intention. They were singing songs that were supposed to be worshiping God. But this man who's being paid to lead worship in music said, guess what? No more music. I don't know how his senior pastor dealt with that. Because he said, we're doing it wrong. We've got the right goal, but somewhere along the way, he says, I'm more popular than Jesus. We're not singing. And when they finally got the music back, the song that he had written was Heart of Worship. In the end, they got it right. We're not going to do everything right, 
especially the first time. But we keep going towards where God wants us to go. God can use us imperfect people to make things perfect. Let's pray. Lord, who may dwell in your temple, who may stand with you on your holy hill, only the one who leads a blameless life and who does what is right, the person who speaks the truth from their heart and has no lie on their tongue and does no evil to their friend, the person who shows no contempt for their neighbor. The Lord honors those who fear him. And the Lord has sworn to do no wrong and does not take back his word. Whoever does these things will never be overthrown. Lord, today we know we, on our own, are not worthy to stand before you. But you call us into life with you. through the life and death and resurrection of the one person who could rightly stand on your holy hill, Jesus Christ. So it's in him that we grow towards perfection and it's in him that we call others to a new life. Not a perfect life, not a flawless life, but one that is ever increasing in goodness. Use us throughout our imperfections today. And we ask this in your name. Amen.